from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimonies of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by, this, by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept these things, the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade. <laughs> Okay. So if you're not already there, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And here's the question that we are seeking to answer as the church of Jesus Christ in our Western society. And the question is this, how do we live as a unified body in a fractured world? How do, how do we live as a gathering of believers in a world that is kind of unsure of itself, that is bouncing from here to there with every sort of, of, of kind of popular truth that comes along? How do we remain steadfast and solid uh, within this message of the gospel in a world like this? And it's not a new question either. It's a question that's been asked for uh, ages, from the very beginning of time. And so some of these answers are 
uh, some of these, some of these, this question has been answered with other questions. So do we try to make Christianity more appealing to outsiders? Or do we simply seek to engage the culture around us with the gospel? Do we try to change the world through, through different means and avenues like politics and social justice? Do we create a Christian subculture and, uh, that stands outside and kind of uh, points its finger at the big bad world? Or maybe, as one author has suggested uh, a couple of years ago, do we pull away altogether and create monastic communities completely on our own with absolutely no interaction with the world whatsoever? What is the solution? What is the, what is the strategy? Well, I said last week that I argue, because I think the Bible argues this, that I believe the strategy has always been the same since the very beginning. And it's God marking out a people for himself, a people who are his treasured possession, who he has made new in Christ and continues to make new by the Spirit. And it's within this group of people, from all walks of life, different cultures, different socioeconomic background, different races, who God has called together as the church to live out this life together. And it's what I believe Paul is doing here in his first letter to the Corinthians, but by reminding them of who they are in this way. And he continues this conversation in our text today by letting Jesus himself sort of uh, deconstruct the things they are sleep, slipping into about Christianity and about Jesus and about themselves. I don't think we allow for that enough in our faith. I think we, we are so quick in our culture and I would say arrogant uh, to say, I'm deconstructing my own faith. I don't agree with some of the th these things that, that I've been hearing, and so I'm going to deconstruct my faith. And, and most of the time, they end up just walking away from a faith that was never really truly biblical faith in the first place. When you really should be, all of us, allowing Jesus to deconstruct the faith that maybe you've created in your own mind because it's probably being more influenced by the surrounding culture than you actually think. And Paul sort of does this for the Corinthians in his first letter to them. He's taking all of these kind of uh, realities of, of real life, everything that we are faced with even today with marriage, singleness, um, sexual uh, sin, and, and the like, and he's filtering it through the gospel. And so he does this in his letter uh, this morning in our text in three ways. And he's refocusing their heart and mind on Jesus. So he's, he's doing this in three ways. One is he's reminding them again of the crucifixion of Christ. Secondly, he's reminding them that they have the spirit of Christ. And then also reminding them that they have the mind of Christ. So the crucifixion of Christ, the spirit of Christ, and the mind of Christ. So first, the crucifixion of Christ. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 1, the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's illogical. It's irrational. It goes against the grain of popular culture. It is irreverent to talk about in public. But to us who are being saved, 
The cross is the power of God. And notice that Paul says being saved in that phrase, which means the act of salvation is not just this one-time moment in life and you are saved. Now, that is true. You are justified fully in Christ in that moment of belief. But there's also this ongoing salvific work in your life as well. We call it sanctification. And so that's the Spirit continually doing this great work uh, in our own hearts, this great salvific work in our own heart, which means the cross is, is no longer a, just a one-time irreverent event, but the cross is something we are always to keep before us. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that we should always remain at the foot of the cross. And now acknowledging the cross is power, just so you know, is not something you come to on your own thinking and merit. You don't just arrive there all of a sudden. To come to believe in something so despised by the world takes something outside of yourself to draw you to that sort of conclusion, that sort of wisdom. You have to remember when Paul is writing these letters in, in Corinth, they didn't meet in, in cushy private school auditoriums. Um, they, didn't, they didn't meet in safe places where the Bible could be opened and proclaimed in any sort of way. They met in a place where if you were a Christian, one, that was an oddity. It was an odd religion. And so you were looked at in, in, a, in a very skeptical way. But also, it was a religion in which you could be killed. And so this isn't something that, that they're just kind of taking mildly and just saying, hey, yeah, we're Christians now, and everybody kind of accepts this. To, to come to believe something like this that is so despised it could get you killed, ha there has to be something outside of yourself, a supernatural movement to draw you to that conclusion that this is the way, the truth, and the life. So Paul is continuing his argument in verses 1 through 5 of the world's wisdom versus the cross's folly. So within the culture of Corinth, there was a certain approach that people used when they wanted to dispel information. If they wanted to get something out into the general public, they, there was a certain way in which they did that. Uh, we do that sort of like with political speeches. I know TED Talks have become super popular, so if you want to speak on a particular topic, you just memorize a speech, get some good PowerPoint, and you can give, yourself, give your, your people a TED Talk about your topic that you're passionate about. Well, this is similar to Corinth. In verse 6, Paul refers to their kind of strategy as lofty speech and wisdom. Lofty speech and lofty wisdom. Specifically, Paul says, I didn't come to you in this way. I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God like the Corinthians. I didn't come with lofty speech and lofty wisdom. Uh, some of your translations say, I know if you have an older translation of the ESV, it might have plausible arguments there, or maybe superiority of speech. So Paul is saying, look, I didn't come, with, come to you with these sorts of things. I didn't come with you kind of looking, looking down over you and saying, you're wrong, you need to repent and believe, this is what you should believe, because I said so. Paul didn't come like that. Because this sort of superiority of speech or plausible arguments or lofty speech and wisdom, it meant it was a person who was skilled at producing persuasive arguments, but they were, they were persuasive arguments that were meant and intended to deceive their, their audience. 
So what Paul means by this is that he hasn't come to persuade his audience simply by the use of his words. Because this was the way of Corinth. This was the way of the world. They sought to persuade their audience with their speech by any means necessary so they would stretch the, stretch the truth a bit or they would skew the data just so they could win people to their argument. You could probably think about that in our day as like fake news um, or the, the tabloid headlines that I'm always so surprised are still littering the checkout aisles at, at grocery stores, but they're still there. Or even if you want to even just kind of bring it into the church, even um, the use of smoke and lights. And I've gotten so many jokes about that because we've moved in here about smoke and lights. When are the smoke and lights coming, Kevin? Um, they're not. They're not coming. They're not. But even the use of things like that or or emotional choruses in our church worship services that aren't really uh, meant to guide people into worship, but to manipulate. Now, Paul, I say all that, but to come back to this point, Paul is not against using a well-articulated, logical, clear argument for Christianity. Paul isn't coming in like some doofus off the street and just kind of fumbles and bumbles through his words. Paul isn't against any of those things, and he's not against using those types of things. What Paul is against is using words and using rhetoric and using all of this uh, lofty sort of wisdom to deceive others. For one, Paul is very honest about who he is. He's very honest about his own weaknesses. Just in, uh, in his second letter to the, the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul brings this up. He brings this up in his letter. He says, um, he's quoting them because he's heard, he's heard them say, his letters are weighty and strong. So speaking about Paul's writings here, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Now, I don't know about you, but in my own pride, I would have never put that in a letter. (laughs) I would have never put, like, the people that I'm trying to minister to think I am physically weak. But Paul does. Because Paul knows that it is not about what he looks like or how he sounds or even in how he's saying it. And then in Galatians 4.14, Paul just reminds the Galatians, um, when, when Paul was ministering to the Galatians, he was, he was ill, he was sick, he was, he was weak, and he, he talks about that to them and he's, when he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. So even there, Paul is ministering out of his weakness. He's ministering out of his, his, uh, his sickness there, and he's not afraid to recognize that because it's not about Paul. It's about what Paul is bringing to them. Well, secondly, like Jesus, Paul doesn't dress up Christianity either. He doesn't try to disguise the cross, but instead he lays it all out in full full display for all to see in all of its reality, in all of its um, uh, grossness and brutality. Paul just lays it out there. And the reason Paul doesn't minister in the way of Corinth is so their faith wouldn't rest on his presentation alone. They wouldn't say, man, that was a great TED Talk, Paul. I'm going to consider those things. Or even some emotional rise that may come from his persuasive speech 
These are things that Paul calls the wisdom of men. Rather, Paul wants them to be convinced of the power of God. So Paul, in all of his weakness, physical, even in his speech, and and even in his physical presence, Paul is clearing away everything to make room for the cross. Now, just to be clear, Paul isn't saying there is something wrong with thinking. Paul isn't an anti-intellectual. Paul, Paul, we could say, and he tells tells everybody uh, at some point, he went to the best schools, he studied under the best professors, and would probably have the equivalency of a PhD uh, these days. He was an intellectual giant. And Paul also isn't saying rhetoric or eloquent speech are wrong either. There, there are good ways to use it, Paul says, and there are bad ways to use these things. I mean, Paul, even in his letter from, since chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has been using these methods as well. Paul gives, uh, gives uh, persuasive arguments for the gospel. He gives logical arguments for the gospel. But what Paul is against, just to say it again, is when these things are used to manipulate an audience, which was a common tactic by others in Corinth. These speeches tended to be attention-grabbing and aimed to to simply persuade people regardless of the truth. I mean, this is kind of like first-century clickbait or fake news or some political speeches that we will hear uh, coming up in 2024 only to grab the attention whether it's true or not. There was a a philosopher during this era that named Plutarch, who wasn't a believer, but he agrees with Paul's uh, assessment of these types of people, and he describes them as this. He says, they are self-absorbed, competitive, who seek the same status as stars, so famous people, comparable in this respect to audiences' favorite actors or gladiators. So I think we would replace gladiator there with athlete. And this reminded me of, of, of even some of our own kind of modern day celebrity pastors who are more concerned at looking like an actor or looking like an athlete or garnering that sort of fame and attention from their admirers. They're more cons- concerned with how they are perceived And what they can gain, fame, money, influence, than the actual message they should be proclaiming. And even so, I think if Paul were here with us today, even with his status, I don't think Paul would be let into many pulpits around our country because of the way he looked and the way that he communicated the message. It's not flamboyant enough. It's not attention-grabbing. It's very plain. So if Paul isn't saying these things are wrong when used correctly, what then is Paul's goal here? If Paul isn't concerned even about his own presentation and his own um, kind of appearance, what is Paul trying to do? Well, look at verse 2 because he tells us the answer. Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what Paul is doing here is he is clearing the path once again for the crucifixion of Jesus. Not by attempting to make it more attractive with eloquent speech or persuasive rhetoric, but laying out the meaning of the cross for all to see so that nothing is hidden. Because for the Christian, the cross is central to your belief system. Because that's where the power of God lies over all of, it, all of his enemies, over Satan, over sin, and even over death. So Paul is saying, I am not here to pr- promote myself. I, I am not here to entertain you. I am not here to compete with anybody. I'm not here to, to garner compliments and accolades. I am not here to build a platform for myself, which Paul probably could have done. No, the only thing I'm here for is to make Jesus known amongst you, period. This is why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. His life was Jesus. And this is what sets Paul apart from every other person in the city of Corinth. Every other message that was being proclaimed. This is what sets Paul apart. And this too, just to relate this, to apply this to my own life, to Kevin's life, this too should be my primary goal as your pastor. I should not use this pulpit to get up here and to promote whatever political party I might be voting for. I should not get up here to promote whatever uh, sort of social justice endeavor that is hot right now in our society. I should not get up here to try to bully people either. I should not use this as a means in which to kind of to crown down upon you what you are doing wrong and you need to do it right because I said so except for where you sit in the building. That's an exception to the rule. But there should be no other message that flows from this pulpit besides Jesus Christ and him crucified. If ever another message comes out of this pulpit from my mouth or anybody else's, leave. Because the gospel has stopped being proclaimed. But even though you're not off the hook here, even though you are not a full-time pastor and get paid to do this particular job, this should also be, as, as a Christian, this should also be your primary framework as well. In your vocation, in the school that you attend, in your family, in your marriage, amongst your friends, in, in any sphere that you find yourself, this should be your framework. The cross of Jesus Christ should be your framework. To know nothing else amongst them, your colleagues, your friends, your family, which means you're not constantly talking about Jesus with them, but it just means that no other message is going to come from your mouth that is contradictory to the gospel. Let me just say that again. No other message should be coming from your mouth amongst your colleagues, amongst your friends, amongst uh, your, 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 uh, your family members, or anyone else that you come in contact with. If you call yourself a Christian, that is not the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is seen not only in your speech, but it's also seen in the way that you live. 
Does your life point to the cross? Now, you can't accomplish that on your own. So you're going out on a Monday morning. You can't accomplish that on, on your own. So we have to recognize that because of the cross, because of the crucifixion of Jesus, we possess two things. And these, be, these will be our next two points. We possess two things because of the cross. First, we possess the Spirit of Christ. Now, we've established that the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's not logical. It doesn't compute with the modern person because it goes against the grain of popular culture. But to us who are being saved, the cross is God's power. But this is not a conclusion, again, that we reach on our own endeavor to come to believe something so despised by the world as something not only powerful, but something beautiful. But we sing about it every Sunday. This takes something outside of yourself to draw you to this sort of conclusion and wisdom. So Paul communicates this in verse 9 when he quotes from Isaiah 64. He says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, this is great because Paul is saying from Isaiah, from the Old Testament, you haven't seen anything like this before. You haven't seen anything like the cross. You have not, you have not seen this type of love displayed in any part of your life. You, you haven't even heard of this type of love. You have never heard of this type of act. There is no other religious system in the known world that has a sacrifice like Christianity does. And then Paul says, you can't even imagine. Not only can you not, uh, you've never seen it or you, you've never heard of it, you can't, even ima- you can't even get there in your imagination. And we can imagine some pretty incredible things. Paul says, you can't even get there in your imagination. What love this is that God has for those who love him. But the Corinthians are obviously having a hard time understanding this, the Corinthian church, the Christians here, what they have in Christ, which is why Paul says in verse 6 that they are immature in the faith. And later in chapter 3, he calls them infants, babes in Christ, babies. They're They're still eating baby food. They're still drinking milk. They haven't moved on to solid things. They are unable to grasp this reality that the cross brings to them. But even though they're immature, and maybe you're, maybe you're very new in your faith as well. I talked to somebody last week, and they were telling me they're, they're new in their faith. And so maybe you're there. Maybe you're immature in your faith. Maybe you, you feel like you are a babe in Christ. That's okay, because you are still, you are still in Christ. Which means you still possess the Holy Spirit of God. And so this means they, they do, the Corinthians do have what it takes to discern between this wisdom of the world that is starting to infiltrate the, the, the church here and the wisdom of God. They have what it takes to understand between those two things. And as Christians, you've been given the Spirit of God to help you discern what is right and what is wrong in this world. You know how to discern those things. You've been given the Spirit to help you live out what the cross of Christ proclaims in every sphere of life. 
And I like the way Peter puts it in, in his second letter. He says, God has given you everything you need for life and for godliness. Which means, as a Christian, you are never lacking. In whatever you are facing, whatever situation comes your way, no matter how bad the suffering may be or, or how dire the situation may seem to you, in whatever you are facing, you are never lacking because of this promise. And it's because you have the Spirit, or as Jesus calls him in Acts 1, which I think is, is so good, is he calls him, I'm going to send the helper to you. Because Jesus knows we need help. And so this is incredible. Because Paul is saying, the things no eye has seen, the thing no ear has heard, the thing that no person can imagine has been revealed to you by the Spirit of God. We have access to the mysteries of the faith because of this. So why is this important for you to understand? Well, because the Spirit searches everything, and in this everything that the Spirit is searching, that Paul talks about here, are the depths of God. One commentator said, this, this divine address is the very condition of divine intelligibility as through the Holy Spirit, God speaks out of himself. So in other words, we know God by the Spirit of God. If we don't have the Spirit of God, we will not know God. There's the logic, okay? Or as, one, or as another theologian put it, he says, God is known through God alone. And I, I just realized that rhymed this morning. I didn't mean for it to you, but, but God is known through God alone. So if that helps you remember that, there you go. If God doesn't reveal himself to you, you will not know God. In verse 11, Paul says, no one comprehends the thoughts of God. No one does. There's not some guru out there who, who comprehends the thoughts of God. And then he goes on to say, except the Spirit of God. Then he makes plain in verse 12 that we have not received the Spirit of the world. So he, this is the argument here. We, the Spirit of God can comprehend the thoughts of God. Uh, and then he says that, listen, Corinthians, Christians, you have not received the Spirit of the world. And let me just describe to you the Spirit of the world here in in our in 21st century culture we have not received the spirit that we tend to default to when things get tough when god hasn't brought a spouse and you're single and you begin to think that that guy or that girl who isn't a believer is starting to look pretty good right now because i'm getting desperate or when our, your kids are going off the rails and, and maybe you drop into that podcast that has become so popular around, around uh, the United States and you think, oh, if I listen to this and I do these particular things, and then my children will, will be good again. Or when you realize in marriage, your spouse isn't actually perfect. I know that's a shocker for some of you younger married folks. But then maybe you begin to think how nice it would be to get out of this marriage. Or, or what it would be like to be married to that woman or that man. You see, the spirit of the world 
doesn't understand the ways and workings of God. It doesn't understand that being single for your entire life is better than being happy in a marriage that you think might be successful because you're married. It doesn't understand that the Bible clearly teaches uh, to bring up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We ignore that a lot. It doesn't understand that marriage isn't meant to make us happy all the time. That's not the ultimate goal. It's meant to make you more like Christ. Jesus said, and it's another thing that that the, the, the world's wisdom doesn't understand, is that Jesus says what God brings together, speaking about marriage, let no one separate it. So ultimately, what this teaches us is that the spirit of this world rejects Jesus. The spirit of this world rejects the cross. The spirit of the world rejects kind of gospel understanding and gospel living. And so Paul says, no, Corinthians, in verse 12, you haven't received the spirit of the world, but you have received the spirit who is from God. God. So the Holy Spirit is who he's speaking about here, the third person of the Trinity. This is why I had us review questions 36 and 37 from the Catechism this morning to sort of refresh our minds about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit tends to be the forgotten member of the Trinity at times. We talk a lot about God the Father and God the Son, but we kind of uh, just kind of, we know the Spirit's here. We know we have the Spirit, but we kind of forget about the Spirit at times. But we have to remember that the Spirit is a gift to the believer in Christ. But he's so much more. Stephen Um, who is a pastor in Boston, says the Spirit uh, reconfigures the way we understand God, ourselves, others, and the world we inhabit. The Spirit gives us the, ear, the eyes, ears, and imagination to know what God has prepared for those who love him. So verse 13 tells us the significance uh, of this. This is what we speak. Paul says, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. So this is, a, this is a spiritual reality outside of yourself. A reality that some say is foolish because they don't know, uh, they don't know the Jesus who has given us the spirits. And this is important. This is important to keep, keep before us as we move into our, our final point and the second thing that the Christian possesses because of the cross, and that, that is the mind of Christ. So not only do we possess the the spirit of Christ, we also possess the mind of Christ. So through the work of the cross and the activity of the spirit, this is how a person becomes a spiritual person, how how someone becomes a spiritual being. It's through those activities. Paul continues to make known to the Corinthians who they are in Christ. This is is his main message, because remember, their, their, their kind of understanding of the gospel, their understanding of who Jesus is and what the cross is, is a little bit skewed. 
So Paul is kind of taking them back through the basics so that they understand uh, who they are in Christ. So in verse 14, he goes back to the folly of the cross. So he goes back to his original argument where this all began last week in chapter 1, verse 18, and he gives them the reason why the cross is considered folly. And he says these words, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. So Paul is going beyond the cross here. He's not, he's not just saying, not only is the cross foolishness, that's foolishness to the unbeliever, but he's also saying that everything else about the Christian life is foolishness as well. And they cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Now, this is helpful to know, especially for those of you who may be surprised or shocked to learn last week that you live in a world where Christianity is seen as negative and also where you are surprised at the evil that exists on a daily basis. But why should we expect those without the Spirit to do otherwise? Two of my kids and I were um, driving to Columbia yesterday uh, for a cross-country meet, and we were listening uh, to the country, we're listening to a lot of music, but we got on to, to a country artist named Tyler Childers. Some of you are fans of his, but and you know that he just came out with a single um, that's a, a beautiful song in its own right. Beautifully written, great message throughout the song. Uh, you probably, if you're going to get married again, you'd probably want to dance to it at your wedding with your, with your bride. But this song hasn't been accompanied by a music video that kind of portrays the love story of a homosexual couple. And so it's, of course, getting a lot of backlash and people pushing back and forth on it and saying, we thought you were a country, Tyler, you know, and all these th things. You're supposed to hold to our values and all these other things. And my kids and I were talking about this, and I asked the question, why should we think that he would do otherwise? Why are we holding him up to the standard that, that, that God has for us? He doesn't have the Spirit of God. He doesn't understand that, that what he's doing is wrong. And something that is against God. So why do we expect someone that doesn't know and love Jesus to hold to our convictions? And I even think to think that way, some of you might be arguing in your own brain, like, well, we should, we should, that should be our standard, that should be the standard of this world. That would be theologically inaccurate for you to say. Because what you're saying is, uh, there's another spirit that they can have that will help them to understand that what they're doing is wrong. When Paul is saying very clearly, because the things of the Spirit of God don't make, the, the things of the, of the Spirit of God don't make sense to the natural person. That's why they think it's foolishness. Those without the Spirit of God are going to think Christianity is foolish. It will be folly to them until the Spirit intervenes and changes their heart. And just as an application point, it's not to stop listening to non-Christian musicians or whatever you might be thinking in your brain. This is, this is our application point for this particular moment. 
This is what we should pray for our non-Christian friends. Because no matter how many words you speak or how eloquent your speech is or how well you know how to present the gospel and maybe you are schooled in apologetics and you think, I have all of the answers, I am very clear, they are going to listen and they are going to repent and believe because of what I said, nothing will happen in that friend or that family member's life until the Spirit of God intervenes. And so first and foremost, that is what you should pray every single day for your non-Christian friends and family members that you are going to interact with that day. That the Spirit would open their eyes. That the Spirit would move in their hearts. That the Spirit would give them the mind of Christ as well. Now this is an unbelievable truth that Paul reveals in verse 16 when he says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? He's quoting from Isaiah 40 there. But we have the mind of Christ. So remember, he is speaking to the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church who is being kind of persuaded by the culture, persuaded by the world. They are not doing well. They're not healthy. We probably wouldn't send somebody to the Corinthian church at this point in, in, in Paul's letter. We wouldn't say, yeah, that's a healthy place to go. We'd probably say, no, nah, not right now. Wait till Paul deals with them. But Paul is saying, look, even in your, even in your confusion, even in your kind of, uh, kind of catering to the world right now, even in all of that, you still have the mind of Christ and this is amazing. I don't, I, don't, I, don't think you, I don't know if you understand how amazing this is right now, but, but I, my mind was being blown in my study this week because of this. And it's amazing because this tells us that the Spirit is a gift of the Father and the Son, and that the mind of Christ is a gift to us from the Spirit of Christ. Okay? The Spirit is a gift. And then the Spirit gives us a gift that is the mind of Christ. So what this is telling us is that this big God out in the universe that sometimes we just think is so distant and so far away and so unknowable, this God has done everything that he can possibly do so that you can know him. Every member of the Trinity is for you. Every member of the Trinity wants you to understand the bigness and the reality of God. And here Paul is saying to the Corinthians, who were so impressed by the intellect and the rhetoric of their neighbors, the wisdom of this world, and they think, oh, this is so wonderful. These people can speak so well, and they're, they're so smart, and they're so articulate. What they're saying must, must be true. What Paul is saying to these confused Christians is that you possess something much greater than all of this because you have the mind of Christ. Which means what is true of Christ, and this goes back to our union with Christ as a believer, what is true of Christ is true of you. Did you know that? What is true of Christ, everything that is true of Christ is also true of you. And this secures those who possess the spirit 
um, from caving into the wisdom of this world. And it also reminds us how firm a foundation that you and I possess in Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to reflect upon these great truths that God has revealed to us in his word.